This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everybody, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Appreciate you starting your weekend with me. Now is the time that uh, so many of you have uh, looked forward to all week. It is now time for us to call out the shenanigans of those that need calling out. It is time for the other side of midnight presents. Let me begin by denouncing the Kenyan parliament. You know, if you look at what's going on in almost all of these African countries, it's just such a mess. Kenya's parliament has banned the wearing of a suit named after the late Zambian president, Kenneth Kaunda, within the building. So if you step into the parliament building in Kenya, you cannot wear a Kayunda suit. This is the stupidest thing in the world. The Speaker of Parliament said Kayunda suits as well as traditional African clothes are not welcome. The Kenyan president, William Ruto, often wears them on official occasions. And this has made the Kayunda suit, which is a safari jacket with matching trousers, popular with the political class it's uh very the it's named for the former zambian president who loved wearing them it's often short-sleeved and it's worn without a tie mr ruto has worn the suit sometimes with a short upturned collar apparently they say the decision to ban the suit was due to emerging fashion trends that threatened the established parliamentary dress code i think this is ridiculous this The Kayunda suit, this is not at all like John Fetterman. It would have been like if you always allowed uh, sweatsuits in this floor of the Senate and then all of a sudden you stop. That's what this is. The Kayunda suit has been allowed previously in Parliament and a lot of the members of Parliament have been known for wearing them. So, I mean, the, for them to do this, I think is just absurd. It's ridiculous. I think this is absolutely ridiculous. If it's good enough for the president, everybody should be able to wear it. I want to denounce Google Maps, which my wife is totally dependent upon. She drives somewhere. She always turns to Google Maps. I said, well, how about Waze? How about another form of GPS? Nope. She is loyal to Google Maps. I wonder if she will be after hearing this. 
Google, you remember the Las Vegas Formula One Grand Prix situation we talked about a couple of weeks ago? Well, Shelby Eastler was ready to go home. So she gets into her brother's car with her family on November 19th. And her brother opens Google Maps to navigate the group home to Los Angeles. The app warned that the straightforward route down Interstate 15, which they had taken on the way up, faced an impending dust storm. All right. Good advice. Who wants to deal with a dust storm? But the app, app listed an alternative route that diverged from the interstate and wound through the desert between Nevada and Southern California. So it would avoid the dust storm and save the family time. That's what the app told them. They decided to take it, and they joined a long line of cars heading towards the same detour. The detour took Eastler and her family onto a gravel road that eventually disappeared into a bumpy dirt trail. They quickly realized something was wrong as they looked at the line of cars in front of them. This woman says to the Washington Post, they're all going directly into the desert. The Google Maps route created a day-long ordeal that threatened to strand all of these drivers in the California desert. Thankfully, Isler and her family backtracked to safety, but they were directing people into the desert with no road. Ah, score one for the humans. Score one for the humans. I want to denounce Fuang Taylor, Kim Fuang Taylor. Uh, A jury spent about five hours deliberating before convicting Kim Fuang Taylor on 52 counts of voter fraud in federal court in Sioux City, Iowa. Taylor is facing up to five years in prison on each count. She hasn't been sentenced yet. So this woman took advantage of other Vietnamese immigrants by illegally filling out election forms and ballots. Her husband, Jeremy Taylor, lost a Republican primary for the U.S. House and won election to the Woodbury County Board of Supervisors in 2020. So... The prosecution, in their closing arguments, they said that this case was important because voter fraud jeopardizes the foundation of democracy in the U.S. I completely agree. It also damages the public trust in the electoral process. And this woman knew better. She's worked on campaigns for the last 13, 14 years, and she knew the difference between right and wrong. And she committed blatant voter fraud, taking advantage of immigrants in doing so. Kim Fuang Taylor, I do denounce you. I must also denounce this gentleman whose name we do not have at the moment, who went streaking at the Small World attraction in Disneyland, California. You know, as I've always made clear, I don't have a big issue with nudity, but this guy was acting deranged. He was clearly. Um, drunk or high, and this young man, 26 years old, was acting like an idiot on the It's a Small World ride, jumping into the water and uh, just frolicking around naked. I think this is totally inexcusable. It's not that big of a deal to see nudity, I don't think. I think it is a big deal 
to disrupt and ruin a ride that is especially geared towards children. And the guy was just, again, when you're acting this deranged, running around naked, uh, walking around the boat ride sets, um, taking your clothes off like you're crazy, it's scary to people because you don't know what somebody that acts that way is going to do, especially when there's children around. So to this unnamed Disney streaker, I do denounce you. I must also denounce Sports Illustrated. Sports Illustrated has been caught publishing AI-written articles. I hate this because it takes away jobs from real reporters and real journalists, but they also got it wrong. They got all sorts of details of these articles wrong. They published these articles under fake author names, and they didn't disclose them. They did not disclose that these articles were written by artificial intelligence. So, um, and it's a violation of the Sports Illustrated Union to do this. So shame on you, Sports Illustrated and their publisher. Sports Illustrated, I do denounce you. I must also denounce my beloved city, the city that I was born and raised in, the city that I hope to live and die in. Hopefully not for a little while. New York City, that's right. This will confirm what many of you already know. New York City is the worst city for driving, according to a new study. I can't imagine it's going to improve much with congestion pricing. But uh, a, a new study by route planning website Circuit shows that New York is the worst city to drive in in the entire country, with the average resident spending 236 hours in rush hour traffic annually. That is the most compared to the rest of the country. We beat out Chicago, beat out L.A., beat out Boston. We are the worst when it comes to driving. New York City, it kills me to do it. I still love you, but I do denounce you. Well, I must denounce Roberto Pettis. Roberto Pettis was an employee at uh, KFC and in Indiana, Beach Grove, Indiana. And he was fired for saying that he wanted to shoot all the white people. Now, that's a pretty good reason for firing someone. Well, turns out that he shot a man in the head Tuesday night at this KFC in Beach Grove. And the person that he shot was black. No word on if they're going to offer him his job back since he was shooting a black person rather than a white person. This is ridiculous. I mean, first of all, nobody should be openly advertising that you want to shoot all the white people. Second, you shouldn't shoot anybody. Black or white. So, uh, Roberto Petis, I do denounce you. I must also denounce Jack Blakesley. Jack Blakesley. He is an attorney in Ohio, a noble county, Ohio. Criminal defense attorney. 
once again, uh, happy birthday to my friend Arthur Idala, celebrating his birthday today, who has been suspended for one year for throwing a Pringles potato chip can filled with his feces into the parking lot of the county's Crime Victim Advocacy Center. I mean, you should never throw a container of Pringles with your feces anywhere, but especially not in the parking lot of uh, a Crime Victim Advocacy Center. I mean, at the very least, um, make it Lay's potato chips. No need to use a can of Pringles that way. And finally, I want to commit. I want to denounce the BBC for, quite frankly, a blatant and complete double standard. BBC staff that were seeking permission to attend the Campaign Against Anti-Semitism march were not allowed to attend. They were referred to guidelines that prohibit. Uh, participation in public gatherings on controversial issues. Now, first of all, being against prejudice or anti-Semitism should not be a controversial issue. But the problem here is the BBC did not exercise this ban previously when people wanted to participate in other similar Marches. They were able to attend gay pride marches in previous instances. So, why is it okay to attend marches in support of gay pride but not opposed to anti Semitism? You should be able to, first of all, I think people should be able to attend whatever march they want, but neither gay pride nor anti Semitism is something that I view as controversial. You should be able to stand for or against both. Um, thank you to Tony for printing all these articles out. Well, actually printing all but one of these articles out. So BBC, I want to be clear, I do denounce you. And uh, one was a Washington Post article that was behind a paywall. And I'll just remind Tony and everyone else, if you ever encounter one of these paywall articles, all you have to do is go to archive.ph and you can copy and paste the link in there and that will allow you to read the article. It's the greatest thing ever. Right? It's got to be some sort of a scam. I'm waiting for them to pull the rug out from under me, but I'm going to enjoy it for the time being. All right. World-renowned historian Andrew Roberts joins us in a moment. He is uh, one of the definitive authorities on Winston Churchill, on Napoleon. He's got a new book out that he's co-written with General Petraeus. He is a brilliant man and one of the most quoted historians in all of the UK, a professor, a best-selling author, and uh, I understand he's actually even a member of the House of Lords these days. So uh, we'll ask him about that. Andrew Roberts joins me straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 
it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I am uh, an incredible fan of Andrew Roberts, and uh, it's easy to see why. He is uh, one of the best-selling living historians. He is someone uh, whose uh, scholarship on Winston Churchill is source material for, I don't think it's an exaggeration, Thousands of other authors across the political spectrum, by the way. He's written the definitive book on Napoleon. He's someone that only not only makes a habit of corresponding and dealing with world leaders and heads of state, but they actually seek out his counsel in terms of how to proceed through an understanding of a prism of history. And I read one of his books, I've read several of his books, but the quote from the Wall Street Journal on his book, Leadership in War, Essential Lessons from Those Who Made History, which is a great book, which I can't recommend enough, it really says it all when it comes to Andrew Roberts. Roberts is a masterly storyteller. I can't think of a better description. Very pleased to welcome to the program popular historian, journalist, and a member of the British House of Lords, also a best-selling author whose latest book was written with General Petraeus, Conflict, the Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. Uh, Professor Roberts, thank you so much for joining me on the radio. Thank you so much, Frank, for that uh, magnificent encomium. (laughs) Well, let me also uh, apologize. I believe you are the first member of the House of Lords that I've ever spoken to, and I have to plead ignorance. I'm not sure of the proper way to address you. Should I have said uh, your lordship? (laughs) Well, you can call me Andrew. (laughs) How about that? If we we were being very... uh, pompous about it, then uh, either your lordship or in the House of Lords, the uh, doorkeepers and the police and, and the clerks say, my lord. So ah. either of those would do as well. <laughs> uh, well, I kind of like your lordship, actually. Now, just so I, and again, pardon my American ignorance, but uh, do your descendants get to inherit that title? No, they get to inherit the title, the Honourable. 
ah. um, and they have that for the rest of their lives. But um, but they don't inherit my title. There are 97 peers in the upper chamber who um, are hereditary peers, and they and their children do get to uh, to inherit their. So you sit next to people who are actually called the Duke of Wellington, for example, uh, which is quite a um, fascinating prospect. Now, I know you're a, uh, a a recent member of the House of Lords. Uh, obviously, your scholarship for the last several decades just speaks for itself, and uh, you, you, your you, the book sales alone are um, you know voluminous enough to have you stand out in international history. Did you ever expect it to be named an actual lord? No, no, I didn't really. Um, what tends to happen if you're very distinguished in uh, in your uh, career is that you might get a knighthood, so you become Sir Andrew Roberts. And that really was the highest um, uh, hope that I had. So it came as quite a uh, um, uh, quite a, a sort of exciting moment for me when I joined the handful of other historians who are um, who are in the upper chamber. Let me begin by asking you about uh, something that has made an uh, incredible amount of news this week. Uh, The passing at the age of 100 of uh, probably America's best known and perhaps most controversial diplomat, Henry Kissinger. I know you knew Henry Kissinger. He's quoted in several of of your books and uh, has said a lot of great things about your work. Um, what did what was your view of Henry Kissinger's legacy, and what do you make of those who point out the negative aspects of Henry Kissinger's record, going so far as to call him a war criminal? Um, I think Henry uh, has left an enormous legacy for uh, America. I think when you look at America in the early 1970s, um, when he was uh, National Security Advisor, and then later on, of course, he also became Secretary of State. Um, America was in a was in a difficult and dangerous situation, um, obviously in Vietnam, but uh, also it seemed to be on the retreat in uh, uh, across the world, really, in Asia and Africa, Latin America, and so on. And uh, what Henry managed to do by astute diplomacy through incredibly difficult times, including a war in the Middle East and the quadrupling of the oil price and the um, and the uh, upping of the of the Cold War, essentially was to put America back into the saddle. And by the time he, uh, he left office in 1977, the United States was in a much stronger and better position um, internationally and globally. We in Britain certainly looked up to the leadership of the free world that, uh, that Henry um, personified in many ways in that decade. Talking with with... To, sorry, and with regard to, to the critique of uh, what happened in Chile and in uh, uh, East Timor and Cambodia and so on. With regard to Chile, uh, it was a uh, communist country. It wasn't a, a totalitarian dictatorship yet, although historically communist countries do al- almost always become totalitarian dictatorships. With regard to the uh, Cambodian uh, bombing, it's sort of secret war that he um, and uh, President Nixon undertook, you know, the, the Viet Cong were bringing their uh, resupply and reinforcements down through Cambodia. In that sense, although legally not, it was militarily a perfectly um, acceptable target. In terms of um, 
Winston Churchill, whose birthday it was yesterday and who you've written a great deal about. I happen to reread, because it was his birthday yesterday, the chapter that you wrote in your book, uh, Leadership in War, Essential Lessons from Those Who Made History. There's still such a fascination with Churchill so many uh, years after his passing. What do you think the essential lessons from Winston Churchill are, for instance? Well, I think um, moral leadership um, is the is the key thing, really. Uh, he was a strategic leadership, leader um, par excellence, but he also had this sense of um, forward thinking. He was able to warn about the threat posed by Wilhelmine Germany before the First World War, then, of course, the threat posed by Hitler um, before the Second World War. He was a great strategic leader. And, and superb when it came to morale during the Second World War. And then after the Second World War, of course, he was the first person to warn against Soviet communism and what it was doing in Eastern Europe at a time when it was also very unpopular to say the, the, that. So he, he was willing to put his reputation on the line again and again and again. And in the four great uh, dangers and struggles to um, uh, uh, democracies faced in the 20th century. He got all of them right, and he got all of them right very early on. Um, you know, I also came across a very interesting debate from about uh, 15 years ago of um, you and Pat Buchanan discussing the legacy of Churchill in during the World War II and the run-up to World War II. And it was really interesting to watch. And you can go on C-SPAN's website if people are interested in seeing it. And even though you and Pat Buchanan draw very different conclusions on uh, your scholarship, you're still quoted extensively in his book, would you acknowledge uh, that even with the moral clarity and the leadership that Churchill provided during uh, World War II, that uh, he made a significant number of mistakes in the run-up to World War II? Um, no, I don't think I would accept that. He, um, he, he made mistakes all the way through his life, and he was the first to admit it. He writes to his wife Clementine in the January of uh, 1916 saying, I would have made nothing if I had not made mistakes. Mm. And the great thing about Churchill is that he learned from all his mistakes. He made mistakes over the gold standard, over votes for women, over um, the abdication crisis and so on. But I think he got, the in the 1930s, he managed to get um, pretty much 95% of it right, which for any politician is pretty extraordinary. He warned against the rise of Hitler and the Nazis before anybody else did, and more eloquently than anybody else did. He didn't change his uh, stance because of... Uh, of you know offers of office or how the voters were um, thinking at the time he stuck to what he said what he believed in and of course ultimately he was proved absolutely right and was made prime minister on the back of it Speaking of Hitler, he's someone you also feature in uh, your book, Essential Lessons from Those Who Made History. Obviously, uh, Hitler, a uniquely satanic figure, deeply anti-Semitic. You, you chronicle a number of other uh, poor aspects of his character, him uh, being uh, quite a braggart, him being incredibly misogynistic. What lessons are there that people can learn from Hitler if there is a positive lesson to be learned from Hitler? Um, don't vote for anybody who isn't going to allow you to um, vote them out of office later. <laughs> I think is the classic one, really, when it comes to to what uh, electorates around the world should uh, uh, should learn. When um, uh, when you're faced with a uh, somebody on the ballot paper who you know you will not be able to remove by democratic means once they become uh, leader, then don't vote for them in the first place.
I also alluded to the fact that uh, you wrote uh, a, a tremendous biography of Napoleon, considered one of the greatest Napoleon scholars in the world. There's this new film out about Napoleon. I haven't seen it, and uh, I have heard varying things. I, I haven't had the four hours to earmark to watch it yet. I understand. <laughs> uh, I understand you have seen it. I'm curious as to your review of the film, both from an entertainment perspective and from the perspective of of historical accuracy? Well, um, you're quite right. It is a long film. It's two hours, 38 minutes, in fact, of which um, 38 minutes are historically accurate and the other two hours are completely historically ludicrous, uh, um, Frank. I can't tell you uh, the, the absurdities that, um, that Sir Ridley Scott has put uh, forward. He has actually attacked historians. He said the other day that... Um, um, effing historians, what do they know? They weren't there, um, which, of course, as you can imagine, has caused quite a lot of hilarity amongst historians as they were not allowed to write about anything that we weren't personally present at. Um, he, uh, it's, a, it's a lovely film in terms of the palaces and the uniforms and the, and the sort of dresses that the women wear, and, uh, and it's got some great battle scenes, although historically completely inaccurate again. And, um, and so as a sort of visual entity, it's fun to go and watch. But please don't take any history from it at all, because he's managed to get pretty much everything wrong. Well, what are a couple of the glaring errors in the film that if people do go to see it just for entertainment's sake, they should take particular pains to make sure that they're not letting seep into their consciousness? Oh, he, he bombards the pyramids at one point, he actually fires cannons at the pyramids. He takes part in cavalry charges, which he never did. He, um, he's at the Battle of Austerlitz is shown as having been won because he fired cannonballs at the ice. And so the Russian and Austrian armies fell through the ice. These, um, these lakes have been uh, um, extensively dived, and there's, uh, they've managed to find one cannon and uh, a few cannonballs um, and a couple of swords. I mean, it was just not an important or, or um, uh, let alone decisive aspect of the Battle of Austerlitz. Um, and we have literally hundreds of people who met Napoleon and who, um, who uh, wrote down what you know, he said and what he did, and, and none of that is to be found in the film. Instead, you get completely absurd things where he essentially has sex with um, Josephine, uh, his wife, the Empress Josephine, under the table whilst the servants are present. Um, and uh, in fact, it was a it was a sort of well known for being a highly dignified court that was attempting to sort of ape the Bourbon court. So uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's just one one error after another. Interesting. We're talking with uh, Andrew Roberts. His uh, latest book with uh, General Petraeus is Conflict, the Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. Uh, so. Your Lordship, tell me about this uh, this book, Conflict. Why did you feel that the evolution of warfare from 1945 onwards was something that needed to be chronicled and explained? Well, when the um, Russian invasion of Ukraine took place, I got on to David, who I knew quite well, and, uh, and said, look, there are going to be lots of geopolitical books and political books that are going to come out about the Russo-Ukrainian war. But what we ought to write is one that's just simply from the military history perspective, putting the war in its military history um, terms. And um, luckily, he jumped at the chance, and we got on to the publishers, and they said, how are you going to divvy up the chapters? And I said, well, David's going to write about all the countries he's invaded, <laughs> and uh, I'm going to do everything else. And uh, he also wrote the Vietnam chapter. 
And what we wound up with really was a um, book about how the concept of war and how people actually fight wars has altered from 1945 to Ukraine. And Ukraine itself was an important, uh, is an important um, paradigm-shifting war because of the way that technology has been used to uh, harness, essentially, much better by the Ukrainians than the Russians at the moment, uh, to, um, uh, to defend the country. How has, I realize there's a whole book about this, and I'll encourage folks to read it, but how has conflict changed from 1945 to 2023? What are the understanding that it's due to technological advancement? What are the areas that technology has caused warfare to change? Oh, in, in so many. We, um, in the 10th chapter, the last chapter, we go into all of this and also the, um, the future of warfare. And we talk about space and cyber, um, about drones, of course, which has been uh, tremendously important in the Ukrainian war, various anti-tank weaponry, which was in its infancy in 1945, but is very advanced today, as we see from the turning back of the Russian convoy um, going into uh, Kiev last year. And um, we talk about information, disinformation, misinformation, so important as well as an aspect of, um, of fighting today, much more than it was in even in 1945. And um, so there are, there's also, of course, a, a lot about robotics and AI and the way in which that's going to alter warfare. We're going to see drones fighting against drones. We're not going to be seeing, seeing pilots in jet planes. We're going to see computers in them because the pilots, uh, however fast they are, are not going to be quicker at thinking than the computers. So it's a, um, it's a huge area. Um, almost everything has changed. Except, of course, the uh, ultimate thing where you where you put troops on um, on the territory you captured, and and that hasn't uh, changed. Although with robotics, it might not be done by human beings. Why? I suppose you could have uh, started uh, in any year, 1945, 1845, or 1845 BC. Did you choose 1945 because uh, that was when nuclear weapons were first used? Did you choose 1945 because that's when World War II ended? Why begin there? Well, both of those reasons, certainly. There was a sort of dream of peace that started in 1945. People thought that the United Nations was going to be able to abolish war after this terrible conflict in which 60 million people died. And so that's why we entitled our first chapter The Death of the Dream of Peace, because it became quite clear, um, not least with the Chinese Civil War, which started in 1946 and killed uh, some 6 million people, that this, um, this hope that human nature could in some way alter and that, um, and that war would be a thing of the past had um, been obviously turned into a, a pipe dream. One of the things that we've seen since 1945 is that countries that have nuclear weapons aren't invaded by other countries and countries that give up their nuclear weapons like, say, Ukraine, they are vulnerable to invasion from uh, other countries. So if you're a rational actor, wouldn't every nation want to have nuclear weapons? Uh, yes, which of course is one of the um, major problems that we have with regard to um, um, nuclear proliferation. And uh, with Iran at the moment attempting to, uh, or which would love to have a nuclear bomb and certainly would, would start making one the minute that the Western nations turned um, their attention elsewhere, there is a very serious threat, not least because if Iran did, 
then of course um, Saudi Arabia and Turkey and other um, countries in the region would also get theirs. So it is, uh, you put your finger on it, there is a huge advantage to having nuclear weapons. Um, I give you another one example, though, of course, of a country that um, has had nuclear weapons probably since 1967, and yet which is attacked, and indeed was attacked last month, and that's Israel. Um, but there is the assumption, of course, that um, with mutually assured destruction, the uh, the country that has nuclear weapons doesn't use it unless doesn't use them unless there's a uh, existential threat to its very existence. You know, in the case of Iran, I mean, you see totalitarian regimes like uh, Kim Jong Un in North Korea. And he's able to remain in power because folks are afraid he may use a nuclear weapon or a hydrogen bomb or something of of that nature, even though everything that we do know about North Korea, as little as it may be, uh, shows him to be just not only horribly oppressive to his own people, but uh, potentially a threat to uh, a variety of other civilizations. And he's threatened to uh, be a very, very real threat to a variety of other countries. You look at that juxtaposed with uh, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya, who, while he may not have had nuclear weapons, he did have other weapons of mass destruction that he voluntarily gave up. His reward for giving up those weapons was he was subsequently taken out by an international coalition of Western countries. Seeing what happened in uh, North Korea, seeing what happened in Ukraine, seeing what happened in Libya – if you're Iran, doesn't it make sense from their perspective to pursue a nuclear weapon? Um, yes, of course it does. And it, it also makes sense for the United States and uh, for who, of course, Iran has been denouncing for 30 years as the great Satan and for the United Kingdom and, uh, and other countries in the region as well, like Israel, to where the Ayatollahs have, have said that they're going to wipe Israel off the map when they get a nuclear weapon to stop them from getting it. So it does make perfect sense for them, but it makes equal sense for Mm -hmm. us to um, make sure that it never happens. Talking with Andrew Roberts, his uh, latest book is Conflict, the Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. You you alluded to the use of uh, technology in the Ukraine conflict, particularly by the Ukraine side. How is the war going from what you can tell? How are things faring? Well, David uh, Petraeus and I went to Kyiv about six months ago and talked to a lot of the of the generals and, uh, and ministers there, and uh, they had a, um, a pretty high morale at the time because they were they were building up for the uh, great uh, late summer early autumn offensive. But that has not had the uh, hope for breakthrough. Um, it turned out that the Russian mines, uh, which are of course protect, protected by drones, are um, much much deeper. The minefields are miles deep, as opposed to a few hundred yards, and uh, and they're being um, they're being deepened all the time as well. So it hasn't um, seen the great sweeping um, open country manoeuvres that we were hoping might be able to get the Ukrainian army to the Sea of Azov, which, if it had managed to do that, would have then put an enormous pressure on on Crimea. So um, so morale is correspondingly less um, high than it was. However. Um, that said, the, um, the latest remarks by the Ukrainian foreign minister are, are still pretty, uh, pretty punchy. You know, they are not about to uh, to give up. Uh, with the Ukrainians and the Russians both 
utilizing uh, military conscription and the population of Ukraine being 40 million and the population of Russia being 140 million, what role does the difference in population between those two countries play in terms of the likely outcomes of this conflict? Uh, historically, it plays a great um, a, a, a great deal. Of um, uh, it's very important, you know, if you are able to um, to put three times the number of men in in uniform, ultimately that is going to have an effect. There are um, there are some disadvantages to it. Of course, politically in Russia, it's uh, not popular to have um, mass conscription. Um, it's also very, very expensive. The Russians are now spending some 40% of their GDP on defense, which is the highest uh, since the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, it's also, you also need a huge amount of training um, to, um, to operate effectively, and they're sending troops into battle that, frankly, haven't been trained to the degree that they need to be, which means that the Ukrainians have, um, have managed to uh, win any number of tactical victories, especially last year. So there are some, um, some dangers and drawbacks in having very large uh, sort of levee en masse um, armies. But uh, overall, of course, it's a very good thing to have numbers if you can, if you can produce them. Lastly, um, obviously, the British government is very different from the American government, but there are a significant number of democratic traditions that are part of the British system. I see that the uh, foreign, the former prime minister of the UK, David Cameron, has been uh, made a part of the current government in the UK. I believe he is uh, Home Secretary. And in order, oh, Foreign Secretary, excuse me, Uh, because in order for him to be a part of the government, he would have had to have been a part of Parliament. I understand he's been appointed to the House of Lords, just like you, uh, even though he's not been elected. Given the fact that traditionally people who hold this role are at least elected by someone, I could see folks viewing this as a bit undemocratic. Are folks in the UK viewing the appointment of David Cameron as undemocratic? No, no. We've had plenty of uh, secretaries of state in the House of Lords. I mean, over the centuries, we've had we've probably had more in the House of Lords than in the House of Commons. Um, you don't need to. Uh, you need to obviously uh, elect a, uh, a government democratically, but you don't have to have every single member of that government sit in one chamber and none in the other. That would be um, that would be unconstitutional, and it would be very much against our our long history of having ministers from both um, houses of parliament. Are you sorry you didn't get the the call to serve in the current government? Um, I'm a bit too busy writing history books, <laughs> as you mentioned earlier, Frank. But uh, no, I, uh, I, I'd hate to be a I'd hate to be a day to day retail politician. That would be the absolute ghastly job. I, I, I rather suspect. I, I rather suspect you're correct, uh, Andrew Roberts. Uh, please check out his new book with General Petraeus: Conflict: The Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. Thank you, Your Lordship. I hope we can speak again. Thank you so much. Of course, I'd love that. If you, if you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight.
other side at midnight with Frank Morano. By Capital Cities, another birthday bumper music selection by Patrice DiTomaso. Happy birthday, Patrice. If you want to comment on uh, anything we have covered thus far, and boy, oh boy, have we covered a lot of ground. Um, aliens, of uh, you know, sex, foreign policy, history. Uh, you can give us a call, 800-848-9222. We have five open lines. And uh, just a reminder that our guest booker, Sitlali, is here. So we want to put our best foot forward. So if you're a really energetic, enthusiastic fan of this show, and you don't have to really call in, call in. This is the day to call in because we want to – it's like when you go uh, and, you know, sometimes your mom would say dress every day like you're going to meet the mayor. This is our version of meeting the mayor because we have a visitor. Um, you know, I remember the school that I went to. Almost any day, high school, almost any day that I would, you know, like a lot of public schools, almost any day that you would go there, it was a total zoo. I mean, it was ridiculous. There were fights in the hallways. There were just, you know, all sorts of stuff going on. There was trash thrown on the floor. Not always, but often. Um, (laughs) I remember one day the chancellor of the school's chancellor came to visit and it was like a different place. There was not a speck of dirt anywhere. There was not a fight to be found anywhere. It was a different place. Teachers would say to me, do you feel like you're at a different place other than the school that we were at? It was kind of like being in San Francisco when uh, President Xi visited. So that's what we want to do. We want to pretend today is our San Francisco day with Premier Xi visiting. All right, 800-848-9222. We're on uh, X, formerly known as Twitter as well. At Frank Morano, that's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. You know, I did something very rare yesterday that I've, you know, never, I try never to do. They asked me uh, to go on uh, Dan Abrams' show on News Nation last night, but uh, I didn't go on for a few reasons. One, I am way overdue for a haircut, so I would hate to look at clips of me with this giant I think if you looked at my hair as it is now, it's almost indistinguishable from Cornell West's hair. Not only is it big and puffy, but there's this massive gray streak in front in the midst of it. It's not even a gray streak anymore. The gray is it's like an invading army overtaking the non-gray portion of my my scalp. So I, I'm not and I, you know I'm not looking my most 
svelte these days either. But I also had some uh, stuff that I had uh, committed to doing in the 9 o'clock hour. So I figured, ah, rather than reschedule everything and have to bear to look at my mop on my head, let me turn that down. But he wanted me on to talk about uh, some of the moves that MSNBC is making. Apparently they're uh, getting rid of uh, some of the weekend programming and um, I guess he was doing the segment about whether or not this is in response to the ratings dip that they've experienced in, uh, in since this Israel war began. I'm curious who they got to replace me, but that was nice of them to ask me. Hopefully they'll ask again. Hey, you know what I noticed? That uh, we had pizza in the break room there, courtesy of our friends at Grimaldi's. I didn't try it yet because I've been busy. I've been running around. It's one of those days. But it did look pretty good, and it got an endorsement from my colleague Rita Cosby. Is that your doing, uh, Matt Blaze, that Grimaldi's pizza? Absolutely. So what, what uh, did they send it for free? Yes, complimentary from Grimaldi's. Well, that was very nice. I heard uh, Anthony from Grimaldi's interview uh, with uh, Katz and Cosby the other day. And did you try any of the pizza? Absolutely. I had the white slice and the pepperoni sausage combo. Wow. Excellent. I'm going to see if there's uh, any left that looks good. What are you doing this weekend? Relaxing. What, what does that entail? Nothing. Right. Absolutely right. nothing. I am looking at my schedule for the next 72 hours, and I need a vacation from the, from the weekend. No, I'm just kidding. I, uh, I'm supposed to be at this fundraiser tonight for um, Congress member Nicole Maliotakis, who's my friend and Congress member. And I uh, am also, I think tomorrow, Saturday, we're going to Pennsylvania for a Christmas train ride with uh, my son Carmine, because he does like trains, and my mom. That was his birthday gift to him last year. And I think for whatever reason, it got rained out or postponed. So uh, this is the makeup of that. So that should be fun. And then uh, I don't remember what we have on Sunday. I'm really hoping to make a lot of headway on the planning for uh, New Year's Eve Eve. But uh, today I have a friend also visiting. So uh, I don't know. And I'm sticking around to do an extra hour of, uh, of radio. So from 6 to 7 a.m. if you want to hear me, go to WABCradio.com. Until then, your influence counts. Use it. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.